Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. My guests today are Dr. Peter McCullough and author John Leake, who have collaborated on a book titled The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. This book traces the travails of Dr. Peter McCullough, an internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist who treats patients with COVID and COVID vaccine injuries, and who was an early leader in devising and implementing successful early treatment protocols for COVID patients. As Dr. McCullough worked to get the word out on these protocols, he was attacked, and the protocols were suppressed by what he refers to as the biopharmaceutical complex. Nonetheless, Dr. McCullough persisted and has become a global figure for his efforts to bring the truth about life-saving treatment and information about COVID vaccines to federal and state government agencies, as well as citizens around the world. He wrote his book with best-selling true crime author, John Leake, whose previous books include Entering Hades, The Double Life of a Serial Killer, and the award-winning book, Cold a Long Time, an Alpine Mystery. Welcome, gentlemen. Great to be here. The first thing I'd like to ask you about is just generally speaking, what, what inspired the book and um, how did the two of you meet? I am a true crime author and I've written a couple of books that actually took place in Europe. I lived in Vienna, Austria for about 15 years. And both of my first books have a strong forensic medical component to them. And I got familiar with the literature on forensic medicine. I even did some translation work for a pathologist at the Vienna Institute of Forensic Medicine, which was kind of a fabled place in the history of forensic medicine. And so I became I, I, sort of an interpretive framework of what I perceive to be something along the lines of fraud and possibly negligent homicide in the way in which the, this pandemic, the official pandemic response was being communicated to the public. And I thought, you know, this, this has the makings of a, of a true crime story. So I, I began to investigate it. And then I realized I need, I, I'm gonna need to collaborate with someone who has some real medical authority um, and so I saw Peter McCullough's Senate testimony on November 19th, 2020. And I thought, well, there's my, there's my guy. If he'll, if he'll talk to me. So I contacted him and he met me for a studio interview in Dallas exactly a year ago. And we, that was the first of many conversations. And, and so it began. At what point were you Peter in this whole fight that you have been in and are still in? From the very beginning, I was committed to not have my patients or my family members slaughtered by SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 illness. I, I felt a need, a duty, uh, a duty to try to help patients. And I, I was, uh, you know, facing incredible frustrations that my colleagues weren't with me on this and to make matters worse, that, that there started to be frank Let opposition. me ask you something. I just want to interrupt you for a minute. I don't understand why your colleagues, with people dying around them, why they would not stop and at least listen to you. I think it was fear initially. Doctors were scared uh, and they were incredibly frightened. We had reports out of Milan. They had published over a thousand doctors that died of COVID-19 as they ran out of personal protective equipment. We saw the newsreels coming out of that part of the world. And then New York, I never forget a young male nurse who had asthma uh, was featured on CNN and he died of COVID-19. I think this basically injected fear into the medical community. And when physicians were told, that they could close their offices, do telemedicine, keep the reimbursement, and that they don't have to treat COVID. Believe me, I think those doctors injected by my fear took that ticket, the ticket of having no responsibility for this. Uh, in fact, patients were gonna suffer at home and then the hospital was in charge. Who sent that edict out? That became inculcated uh, through the course of 2020 and memorialized in the early October release of the National Institutes of Health guidelines on the treatment of COVID-19, which said, do not treat COVID-19 at home 
In fact, wait till patients get sick enough to be hospitalized. Don't even treat it then and start treatment only when patients are sick enough to need oxygen. We've never, ever treated an infectious illness like this before. Since you have been doing this, you have come under a lot of fire and pressure. I have. It's been extraordinary just facing the headwinds of trying to publish scientific papers. You know, and I'm accustomed to publishing in the Wing of Journal of Medicine and Lancet. I'm one of the most uh, highly published people in my field in the world. And suddenly there was a blockade, even getting any type of information out regarding thoughts of treatment. Uh, and then when I published the very first paper outlining the rationale of why we should treat patients and why certain drugs would work, looking for a signal of benefit and acceptable safety, I was overwhelmed with letters to the editor and downloads. I knew I had hit on something. Peter Novaro from the White House had already contacted me and asked me to help in a, uh, in a modification of the emergency use authorization that was placed on hydroxychloroquine, which was uh, essentially a, a blockade of hydroxychloroquine in the outpatient world, where, where it really uh, had its best application. So I got busy with that letter of support. And then I was contacted shortly after that by Senator Ron Johnson that led us right into the Senate testimony. The reason why our book is so important is I wanted to tell America and the world what was in my mind, what was happening to me and my professional experience, as well as doctors in my circle, as we tried to treat as men, save as many patients as possible. John, talk about how you approached dealing with his experience and the information that he was giving you. I was fairly adept at reading medical literature. I mean, it, not, not as someone who went to medical school, but just I'm I, very interested in medical history. I mean, that's I just find it fascinating how humanity has sort of struggled to understand nature and to understand pathology. And I mean, just discovering that, for example, that germs, that, that pathogens can induce illness. This, this wasn't something that was really even understood at all until the mid 19th century. And I, I had a great, great grandfather that was a surgeon in the Civil War, and he ended up becoming medical officer of, of the city of Dallas in the early days. And I, I, my grandmother had his diary. And so I was very coming at this from a sort of general familiarity with how to read medical literature and with a real interest in medical history. And I think medical history is very illuminating because you see that there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, Dr. McCullough and his colleagues are trying to figure this thing out, but we've been there before. I mean, in 1918, guys were trying to figure it out. And the thing that really stuck out at me reading medical history is at any given moment, there's always an establishment in the academy that presumes absolute authority, which is, is it's funny. I mean, we're all just learning about this. So why is it that there's this imposition of authority? So I knew straight away in March of 2020, this strange way in which the NIH and the CDC and the FDA, they're all, and, and Anthony Fauci, they're all acting as though they already knew that early treatment wouldn't work. And you just ask yourself, well, how could you possibly know that? There is a sort of presumption. Every, every time a, a treating physician, Professor Raoul in France, offers something that might help, that has a signal of benefit, it's dismissed out of hand. And that was early on, and he had already treated thousands of people. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I, I knew that's very suspect, that that does not conform with logic or with what we know about the history of medical practice in which doctors in the field try to find something it seems to work. In, in our 21st century case, we were talking about this earlier today, and I wanna make this point while I'm thinking about it, sorry for rambling on. But one thing I noticed, propagandists will oftentimes take a pejorative statement that has crept into the vernacular, the medicine showman, right? It's, it's an idea that's seared into the American imagination of some guy out on a wagon train and, you know, the, the Dakotas selling snake oil. And so when 
these guys like Dr. McCullough and his colleagues come along and they're repurposing FDA approved drugs, Professor Raoul in France, zinc, extra strength aspirin, prednisone, and they're characterized as medicine showmen or snake oil salesmen peddling unproven treatments. I knew this is a propaganda campaign serving an interest. What is the interest? So that, that was my initial approach to this. What I wanted to understand from Dr. McCullough was the precise mechanics of you know, being a practicing doctor, not only having patients in his clinic, but the broader academic concepts of medicine. And, and so I, I would describe our collaboration. I'm coming at it as a true crime author. He's coming at it as, as a very experienced um, medical guy. And, and we've, we've sort of been comparing notes. This has got to have been sort of a, an enduring trauma for you, because I remember when I saw you testifying in, in Dallas, you were just like, you know, you just don't understand, you know, this is happening. That is a, it, as if, as if it, 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 you weren't aware yet that this might be some sort of massive conspiracy. Can you talk about the evolution, your evolution as you went along and what happened that sort of woke you up to another paradigm at work here? You're right, Christina. It seemed in my mind almost like it was a bad movie that just wasn't going to come to an end. There were things happening that have never happened before. You know, falsified paper published in Lancet to try to uh, fool doctors uh, on hydroxychloroquine safety. It falsified one in the New England Journal of Medicine, the same group, on a class of drugs called the ACE inhibitors. Then, uh, then we saw just uh, absolutely bizarre types of uh, activities going on. Uh, for instance, the FDA declaring that hydroxychloroquine had an emergency use authorization only for inpatient use. It, it didn't need any EUA. We could use hydroxychloroquine for whatever we wanted to do. And actually the first part of the pandemic, there was a huge surge in hydroxychloroquine. It probably kept, kept the case count down and the mortalities and deaths down. And then the, then the FDA doubles down in the mid summer and says no hydroxychloroquine use at all. So the first year of the pandemic seemed to be a battle over hydroxychloroquine. It would go right into the second year of the pandemic and there would go with ivermectin. It's the same issues again. And, and there it's in the open. The American Medical Association declares a campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin, abolish its use. Since when does the AMA want to abolish the use of any drug? The FDA tells us in its, in its guidance, there's a nice 2018 guidance to patients that doctors should be using drugs off the original advertising label because it doesn't apply to a new disease when the doctors are fulfilling an unmet need. So we started to see behaviors that were so far off with respect to early treatment. And then it kept going. Uh, then it was a doctor's licenses being threatened if they did attempt to treat patients. And this was worldwide. I mean, the, 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 the most egregious example was in Queensland, Australia, that a doctor could be put in jail if he, him, or, him or her attempted to treat a patient with hydroxychloroquine. In fact, Jackie Zone, uh, Stone in Zimbabwe was on trial for jail time for using ivermectin in treating the patient. You know, these types of milestones, Christina, should be burned in the memory of people. Why was there such a stalwart uh, opposition to early treatment? Why? I did an interview with Paul Alexander, Dr. Paul Alexander, who uh, was utterly furious about this whole thing because the Trump administration actually was interested in getting early treatment out apparently because he was the science he was he was the science czar for the Trump administration but he was working at health and human services and they were trying to suppress him and they were trying to get him out and they eventually succeeded. Well, health and human services, what, what happened to Dr. Paul Alexander, that, that was part of this struggle that happened around November, the, excuse me, um, March the 19th, when 
President Trump. You know, it's I think it's fascinating how this goes from Dr. McCullough. The story goes from Dr. McCullough in, in Dallas to Marseille, France. And then suddenly we're in Washington, D.C., where the president of the United States is coming out and, and tweeting a link to Professor Raoul's study in the International Journal of Microbiology. It was a sort of proof of concept study for hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. When Trump comes out and tweets this, well, there was an initial press conference, and then he tweeted a reference to Professor Raoul's paper. This then sets in motion this massive you know, palace intrigue. And the Department of Health and Human Services is you know, right in the middle of this, particularly, yes. particularly this fellow, Dr. Rick Bright, he, he is a very important character in this, strong connections with the Gates Foundation, with CEPI, the Center for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, the Rockefeller Foundation. And so you, you see a kind of, I mean, I think of it almost like Cardinal Richelieu or something. I mean, you see these machinations going in, going on in the behind the scenes of the court, working against the executive against Donald Trump. And so I really go deep into this. Um, it is shocking, um, but at the same time, again, you know, we've seen this before. It's just classic intrigue. What happens with Trump is he's the big brash street fighter who you can throw anything at him. He, he just kind of rolls with the punches. What I think is fascinating is, is the guy who neutralizes Trump who, who, who Trump's sort of um, explosiveness is diffused, it's Anthony Fauci. And it's, it's so fascinating to watch these two guys at these you know, coronavirus task force meetings. And Trump has always got this, this sort of neutralizing you know, presence. It's almost like sitting on his right shoulder and what, the, what this is doing is it's pushing him away from his instinctive sense that, well, maybe there's something to this early treatment. Hydroxychloroquine, it just seems like a logical inference that maybe this works. You know, He's actually talking in a sort of commonsensical way about treatment. But you see behind the scenes and then and even in these, it's evident in these, these press briefings, he's being pushed towards the vaccine solution and ultimately yielded to the vaccine solution. So, so that, that's this kind of high jinx at the executive branch. He actually bought, brought Paul Alexander in because he didn't trust the task force. Okay. Right. He brought him in and then, um, and then uh, Alexander, for example, <laughs> was saying, listen, uh, these vaccines, he, he was against the rollout. Uh, he was against Operation Warp Speed and the rollout. At first he said, well, you know, maybe grown, maybe old folks, you know, give the vaccine. And then he, he even backed off that and said, no, I don't. I have a clip I can play of him talking about Operation Warp Speed. I thought it was really shocking. I'd, I, I'd like to pay, play it. The unique thing about Operation Warp Speed is as they began the vaccine trials, day one, day one of Moderna and Pfizer vaccine trials, they began manufacturing the vaccine. So day one of the trial was day one of manufacture. And at the end of that day, those vaccines that were manufactured without the results were actually placed on trucks that the military was overseeing. That was the role of the military, the logistics. So we were running the trial, manufacturing and placing it on trucks, refrigerated trucks on the same day. That's Operation Warp. That's why it happened so quickly. And people probably doesn't understand what Operation Warp Speed. That's the warp speed. We did all three, knowing, knowing there was an agreement that the public would front pay for everything for all of the vaccine companies up front, knowing that of the 12 or 15 vaccine companies that got billions, that most of them would fail. One or two may work. 
all of those that failed would not be jumped. They would not be brought forward. But the ones that were successful were the ones that would be implemented and rolled out. And that's Pfizer and Moderna. But the results that they submitted, I would say, was fraudulent. I'm not the only one saying it. The whole thing was, was outrageously dangerous. Here, just listen to him talk about this. Just based on the submissions from Pfizer and Moderna to the FDA for the emergency use authorization, if you looked at the data, you could see that they cooked the data by the presentation of the 95% relative risk reduction. When you calculate, you saw the absolute risk was actually less than 1%. That means that, that, that this vaccine really conferred no benefit. Then they also in the submission stated that the vaccine is a non-sterilizing vaccine, does not prevent infection, replication, or transmission. Um, all it does is reduces symptoms. So it, it begged the question immediately, but then why would you bring up a vaccine like this? And then basic immunology would tell you that if you brought a non-sterilizing vaccine that does not cut the chain of transmission and you roll that out in the midst of a pandemic, you will, not me, you will drive the emergence of variants. So very early on, we said, I started to write, my colleagues, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Malone, Dr. Good, Fandon Bosch, Dr. Reich, uh, Dr. Tenenbaum, we started to write and we were speaking out clear that if this vaccine continues, we are going to drive variants every one to two months. And the danger with that is there could be a lethal variant that could emerge by chance. Exactly what we said, especially led by people like Dr. Eden and Dr. Vanden Bosch, is happening. We are seeing variants emerging every two months or so, highly infectious. In other words, today, if you want this pandemic to continue for 100 more years, all we need to do is keep these vaccines as is and continue vaccinating the public. You will keep the infections ongoing and variants emerging. These vaccines have failed. They are ineffective and they are harmful. We were talking about this criminal behavior inside that was that was going on and Dr. Paul Alexander being sort of the first-hand victim there. I'm interested in knowing your personal, what, what you went through. What was going on with the administration and Operation Warp Speed? As I mentioned, Peter Navarro reached out to me and said, you know, can you help me free up this, in a sense, lockdown hydroxychloroquine? And explained to me that Rick Bright, who ultimately joined the Rockefeller Foundation, was actually working very hard to block hydroxychloroquine to American people. So Peter Novaro knew what was going on. And I was asked to be a regular contributor to The Hill in the first year of the pandemic by invitation. And I had written a series of op-eds and I was the named principal investigator for the Romachiban program, which is a very promising oral drug uh, developed by the Japanese and Bayer Pharmaceuticals. And we had full application to Operation Warp Speed in the FDA, and we kept being stalled, 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 stalled. And I was the second supporter in the Amodulon program. This was a vaccine. I was a, a clinical investigator of a proposed vaccine with the Dutch. And this was a cell-based vaccine, a modification of the BCG vaccine. And it looked very, very promising. And so in my interactions with Operation Warp Speed, the NIH, BARDA, and the FDA, what I learned and what I published in The Hill was that there's three speeds operation warp speed. The fast speed is already for the chosen favorite favorites, Pfizer and Moderna, and then uh, Johnson Johnson's always gonna be the laggard there. Uh, there's people that were really out of the race. Novavax was always out of the race. They weren't gonna see the time of the day anytime soon. Uh, and then therapeutics were slow tracked and they were absolutely slow tracked. And I, you know, even in Texas Senate testimony, I said, let's get a 1-800 number to help our seniors get into research, get an operation, nothing doing. I could not get any traction to even the Texas Medical Association opposed a 1-800 number that we could help patients get into research. It was stunning. Let's move on to people being vaccinated. What happened to you with that? What I had ultimately learned and concluded is that the suppression of early treatment, which was coming through our federal agencies, coming through hospitals, health systems, doctors, key opinion leaders, the medical literature, that the suppression of early treatment 
appeared to be hand in hand with the promotion of mass vaccination, that the two were linked. And as I came through this, I, I think the, the point in time where I said it publicly, I just said it out loud, was on an interview with Tucker Carlson. I went to his studio in Florida. He said, I said, the two are linked. Those that are suppressing early treatment and therapeutics are the same ones promoting the vaccines. The two are linked. It's clear. And so as things move forward, I do believe that the suppression of early treatment was very intentional. And this includes all early treatment, by the way, even including uh, emergency use authorized monoclonal antibodies, uh, which was tremendous problems of which one we had and, and the supply chain. Uh, you know, they, they were yanked out of production based on theoretical concerns on loss of efficacy as the virus mutated. The vaccines were never pulled. It's funny how the monoclonal antibodies uh, were pulled and there were supply chain issues, both Operation Warp Speed. And now even today, the Pfizer drug is being undermined. Paxlovid is being undermined in the uh, newsletters to physicians and other sources. So it's been complete that the early treatment has been suppressed in order to promote mass vaccination. And I think it was intentional in promoting fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death to prepare the population to receive max vaccination. If they knew there was no hope of treatment and that, that if they didn't take a vaccine that they could end up in the hospital or worse die, they, the vaccine stakeholders believe that was the key lever to get patients fully vaccinated. Yeah, but now, you know, we're in deep into the vaccines. There's obviously problems with them. A lot of vaccine injuries, you know, a lot of uh, people who are vaccinated getting COVID, people who are vaccinated, boosted, et cetera, getting COVID. So it's a very weird time because the narrative has fallen apart. And yet, now they're pushing to vaccinate children, ever younger children. What's going on, Peter? I mean, and what's happening with physicians like you who are speaking out? You know, a recent Texas A&M survey indicated that 10% of doctors now confidentially, uh, uh, that where their names weren't going to be disclosed, 10% of doctors uh, don't think the vaccines are safe or effective. And 10%? That's... That's small. No, 10% is big. It turns out a tiny fraction of those, that 10%, have the courage to actually articulate that. But that 10% is pretty big. And that's actually you know, people willing to do a survey and give their opinion. Uh, and I, I can tell you that 10% is obviously going to grow over time. I think we're down to some self-evident truths on the, the vaccines. The first one would be all experts would agree the, the virus has mutated and the vaccines haven't been updated. I keep going back to Paul Alexander. These vaccines are actually creating additional variants. If you want a pandemic to continue for a hundred years, just keep vaccinating people. Right. And well, again, this, this would be the self-evidence truth. The virus has mutated. The vaccines have stayed the same. In fact, the vaccines have prompted the mutations. Number two, uh, all experts agree that the vaccines don't last six months. In fact, one has to continue to take a vaccine, you know, at least every six months in order to be, quote, fully vaccinated. It's so, like you have to rent your immune system to COVID. Right. So all experts would agree on that. I, I think all experts would agree that the vaccines are not risk free. They're not risk free. They're not zero risk. Our FDA has warnings for myocarditis, heart inflammation, and blood clots, they're not risk-free. So with those three self-evident points, there must be free choice on this. There must be. There, there can be no other conclusion outside of a free choice. With those three accepted premises, in no circumstances can it be mandated, people losing their jobs, being agonized. You know, people are basically facing a Russian roulette of losing their life or being damaged or disabled or keeping their job for six months. The thing that galls me the most is that you're saying people should have a choice, but shouldn't you have a choice to not take or not take something that isn't potentially lethal or isn't potentially life altering in a very uh, deleterious way? I, I, and, and again, I, I go back to them wanting to now 
uh, vaccinate children who actually have their own natural immunity to this thing but and this, who are not transmitters. This reminds me of, of that Rolling Stones song, um, Sympathy for the Devil. You know, the refrain, what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. You're, you're attempting to apply a, a sort of ethical, logical structure to interpreting this, but the evidence indicates that concerns like yours really have nothing to do with it. There was a decision to make a massive investment in these fancy new messenger RNA vaccines. And for these fancy new messenger RNA vaccines to be the sole solution to the next respiratory viral pandemic. This, this was discussed, the investments were made, the partnerships were consummated years ago. And it was decided it's coming, it's inevitable. It could be another SARS, it could be a virulent influenza. And when it comes, we'll launch a universal messenger RNA or, or DNA uh, uh, technology that they've been working on in Cambridge, Massachusetts for some time, that is the solution. So when people like us come forward and we say, well, but what about this, that, and the other? This is just nitpicking you know, about this big- Well, actually, I understand what you're saying, but what I'm trying to get you gentlemen to discuss is with these details, I'm thinking that this is a criminal enterprise. It is. It is. The point I'm trying to make is that, so the planning for World War I, they started talking about this after the Franco-Prussian War. So it, we know it's going to come to blows between Germany and France again. It's probably going to happen in Belgium. There is the von Schlieffen plan. It, you've got the financial stuff, the railroads, the military guys, the weapons guys. They're all planning it. And the Archduke Franz Ferdinand being assassinated in Sarajevo, that was just a triggering mechanism for a train right. that they were planning on leaving the stage. So you say, well, wait a minute, maybe it's not a good idea. And, you know, you guys selling war bonds and profiteering and you're going to get a bunch of guys killed in the trenches with machine gun fire and mustard gas. Maybe, you know, shouldn't we be thinking about this? And the answer is, but this is the plan. This is what we want to do. This is our approach to a big public policy thing. Dr. McCullough has been in, you're under a lawsuit related to this COVID stuff, right? Yes. Can you talk about it a little bit? I'm under a seven figure lawsuit uh, that alleges that I'm dragging the name of my former employer into the media where that has not happened out of my mouth from the very beginning. I can't control what goes up on Google or by fact checkers or, or others. And the lawsuit on its face is a strategic lawsuit against my public participation in discussing this topic and doing exactly what we're doing right now. It's a slap case. It's gone nowhere over months. It's been in a mediation working in slow motion, I think intentionally to keep my name tarnished attempting to keep my name tarnished as I proceed with two sets of U.S. Senate testimony, multiple state Senate testimonies, giving my advice and analysis, which is sought, frequent contributor on multiple news stations. I've been on ABC, Fox, OAN, Newsmax, Whistleblowers Newsroom. Uh, I mean, it's, it's without any question that I have authority to give my analyses and my opinions in this topic, and this lawsuit is a drag on this, and uh, and it seems like it has no end. Well, it's costing you money too, right? It's stressing you out. You're right, and and I think it is in a sense a mechanism to to attempt to wear me down. Yeah. So back to the crime. See, I mean, what I'm trying to do is when I when I do these interviews because I'm I'm looking at this thing as pulling out, sussing out details of a crime, okay? They've killed a lot of adults 
and and maimed a lot of adults okay there are a lot of vaccine injuries i'm i get notices every day of vaccine injured people every day i get it on my on my uh email stream okay so now and that's why i was talking about going to the kids now because that's particularly they're particularly dangerous for the children are they not they are there's no doubt about it this myocarditis is a killer uh, there are now fatal cases, autopsy confirmed by Gil Choi Verma. And we are probably seeing just the tip of the iceberg. You know, the word is out, Christina. I don't think it's an issue of whether or not people know the vaccines have risks or not. I think they acknowledge it. I, I think they're being placed into the most agonizing proposition. Does the child go to school or do they, and again, take this Russian roulette with a vaccine? It's like a, it's like a gun instead of six cylinders. There's 100,000 cylinders, and it's just a matter of, do you land on that unlucky number and get a fatal case of myocarditis? End up with a neurologic injury, paralyzed feeding tubes, seizures. As you point out, it's absolutely horrific. Well, the lockdowns, the lockdowns and the masking and stuff that, that uh, I mean, Paul Alexander said they weren't necessary, and kids were committing suicide and so on. I mean, and... We're talking about it here. You just did a book looking at it and you came at it from a criminal perspective. It is a crime. It's just there's no element of mystery because the, the perpetrators have made this very, very clear the nature of their game. I mean, they've not concealed it. I mean, Bill Gates wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post on March the 25th, 2020. In his Gates Notes blog, of, I believe April the 3rd, he is saying, we're not going to wait for the vaccines to be tested. We'll ramp up production. There's no time. We'll ramp up production and then see what happens once the test results come in. We don't have time to... I mean, he's plainly announcing this. Along those lines, Dr. Rubin, who's the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine at the pediatric FDA meetings, said, we will never know if these vaccines are safe in children. We just have to go with it and see what happens. It's the same continuation oh, of thought. really? My point is this, Christina. It's in the minds of people all over the world at the same time to hurt other people. It's happening yeah. in cultures and the tiniest little places on earth, people are hurting other people through masks, through uh, suppression of early treatment, through vaccines, dividing family over the vaccines. And it doesn't matter what vaccine, you know, over in Indonesia, people are on their knees on whether or not they take Sinovac. You know, in, in Chile, you can't get money out of an ATM unless you take a vaccine there at Sinovac. So it, there are predators, the vaccine companies are predators uh, but I don't think the vaccine companies are masterminding it. I think it's at a much bigger and global level. What level is that? Have, is that covered in the book, John? We call it the biopharmaceutical complex, the pharmaceutical industry being one component of it. But the guys who really structured this thing, and they've been working on it for about 30 years now, it's the World Economic Forum the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the Rockefeller Foundation. They've been very, very interested for decades now in structuring a global, not it's not nation to nation, a, tr a true aspiration of global hegemony and how the world responds to a public health crisis. And so it's a centralized command structure Instead of a military emperor like Trajan or Hadrian or Alexander the Great, it is an institutional structure that is using public health, the fear of, micro of microbes and infectious diseases, to, from the top down, impose on the entire world a unified policy. Now, what is, what is the mechanics of the unified policy? It's vaccine technology shall be the response to infectious disease pandemics. These pandemics are the entry point to this, uh, this plan for global domination. Correct. Well, if you think about it, um, look, 
you go back to our founding fathers, particular, particularly James Madison. He was very, Madison was very concerned about an organized military establishment because what, what he saw studying history was if you have an organized military establishment that gets in league with the executive, then there's always going to be some foreign threat that the executive and the government and the tax, the taxation authority are then brought to bear to build ships and armies and army bases to counter this foreign threat. And what, what Madison observed is the logic of this is that you actually start seeking entanglements, seeking military conflicts, because therein lies the lifeblood of the organization. I see this as it's not a foreign military threat. It's not soldiers on the frontier. It is an invisible infectious disease that's spreading across the globe. And, and the proposition is we have the know-how, the capital, the technology, the funding mechanisms to solve for all of mankind to, pre to present the solution, but you have to come to us and you have to do what we tell you. They've discovered this is a very successful gateway for what they really want to do. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of Daniel Estulin, who has followed the Bilderberger group. And he wrote this thing where he said, here are the Bilderberger goals. One international identity, centralized control of the people, a zero growth society, a state of perpetual imbalance, centralized control of all education, centralized control of all foreign and domestic policies, empowerment of the United Nations, so we'll get into the WHO, very World Health Organization, Western trading bloc, expansion of NATO, one legal system, one well socialist welfare state. Isn't this the perfect thing to achieve a lot of that? It's the perfect thing. Well, I mean, no doubt the context of a medical crisis and through people's own personal medical freedom, far more efficient than trying to invade with an army and shell buildings and uh, et cetera, far more efficient than, than using other types of context. I think what they've learned, you know, planning this out, the, you know, the pandemic planning had been gone on, going on for years. There's been movies now, Plandemic 1, Plandemic 2, very yeah. well researched, that yeah. Uh, yeah. what they've learned is they were right this is very successful. This creates fear. Uh, it, it creates compliance. Uh, and in fact, with these vaccines, I think the most interesting thing with the vaccines is I think everyone knows they actually don't work perfectly. Large numbers of people get COVID-19 anyway, including currently Bill Gates, as well as uh, a, a vaccine uh, proponent, uh, Peter Hotez at, in Baylor in Houston, that, um, that I think everyone acknowledges the vaccines basically don't work at all. The most interesting thing is, is the vaccines have such toxicity that they know they pit people with this decision that they could lose their life with the vaccine or to keep their job. And once they have somebody who takes the decision that they took the vaccine to keep their job, now their viewpoint is, listen, I took the vaccine, I took the risk, you have to do it too. And so if the vaccines were risk-free, they wouldn't have any emotional charge to it. People would just say, sure, I'll take it. What the heck? It's just, you know, no harm, no foul. It's the fact that they have risk to it. That's actually- what Well, there is a harm out. and a foul. Why should you impose a vaccine on people? I don't under, I just, I, I don't find Listen, that I, I'm not in. I'm not in favor of it. I'm just telling you, I think the psychological di dynamics would be different if it was a completely safe vaccine. The psychological dynamics of this is that people who take the vaccine, Christina, they know they've taken risk. And when they know it, they feel like, listen, I took the risk, now you need to do it too. It's a very different viewpoint. Why should I share your risk if, if I don't, if I'm not, you know, I, I know, but what I'm saying is- I know it's a, it's a headspace, it's a psychological it's a projection. And those yeah. who design the vaccines, believe it or not, this could even be intentional to put the emotional charge in the vaccines in order to get people to basically develop this incredible fear and complaint. oh sure well the unvaccinated unvaccinated were have been you know made into pariahs basically so that i get i'd like to move on to the world health organization 
there's two things I want to emphasize real quick before we get away from it. When we tell this, you know, in 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 real time, you know, that SARS-CoV-2 arrives, Dr. McCullough and his colleagues are scrambling to to, to deal with it, to come right. up with a, a way of treating it, and then advocating treatment as they start to discover things, and then they come into this encounter this very strange resistance, and they're all encountering it. I mean. Professor Raul and Ms. Marseille is encountering it, Dr. McCullough, Dr. George Farid in, in um, Central California. And there's this puzzlement of, I'm, I'm treating my patients and I'm actually having success. Why are we encountering this strange centralized resistance? So this is the story that we tell. Yeah. As, as we get towards the end of the story, there is a reflection on what is at root of this. You know, wh wh who are the perpetrators and what is the motive? And what, what we arrive at towards the end of the book is this appears to be a gambit of centralized control across you know, national frontiers, which leads us to, I wasn't at all surprised by this news breaking on the WHO. This, this appears to be the culmination of, 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 our, of our story. Centralized control superseding you know, constitutional sovereignty like what we have in the United States. As a, again, a criminal writer, you've got to have a reptilian sense too because I, I just looked at that and I thought, oh, this is so interesting because they're basically the organization that, that helped globalize this, this dangerous and deadly response around the world. And now they're the ones who are coming up with this, okay, now we're gonna be, you know, we're gonna have this plan. It's gonna be a treaty, which means your sovereign, national sovereignty is handed over on me this med these medical issues, on this medical issue, national sovereignty is handed over to the World Health Organization. And you know, Peter, I remember you saying, my heart really goes out to you, by the way. I just, um, you said to me, there's a sacred bond between the patient and the doctor. The doctor is there to heal you and nothing should come between the doctor and the patient. And if anything is gonna come between the doctor and the patient on a massive scale, this is it. This is it right here. It's not only just laying out plans and suggestions, but actually directing what's going to happen. Uh, flow of information, Christina. They want flow of information. Now, importantly, uh, it's legally binding yes. in international court. And be careful with the U.S. amendments. The U.S. amendments are particularly hazardous. Remember, a treaty needs some type of uh, branch of government approval, senatorial, congressional, both approval of a treaty. Uh, the amendments potentially could skirt any type of ratification process, and it would be done at an executive level, almost under the table, if you will. Uh, you know, what's going on is extraordinarily treacherous, but if we actually give up control, you know, all healthcare is local, and healthcare is so different. If you, you know, they want 194 countries. Well, I can tell you in the central part of Africa is very different than Manhattan. Anybody should know that. The idea that this that 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 healthcare could be that homogenized uh, in pandemic response is absolutely unacceptable. And uh, and I think we couldn't be more alarmed with this loss of autonomy, particularly under health freedom. What about declarations of of uh, let's say masking, you know, it took a a a, a, a judge in Florida to overturn the mask mandate on airplanes because the CDC wouldn't budge. The CDC doesn't even have authority for mask mandates. I mean, you can see how out of control this got. Now, can you imagine this? The WHO now influencing trade, commerce, air travel, personal freedoms, medical freedoms. Uh, you know, having a say on digital currency, digital passports on and on this, you're right, this is a step in a progression for global uh, totalitarianism. The doctors that you know, the ones who were against you early on, what are they saying about this World Health Organization uh, you know, I, I treaty? Don't, I don't have a read on it, but I can tell you the orthodoxy in medicine, we, you know, we get emails through Medscape and, 
and MedPage and Heart.org, they are completely subscribed in the hegemony of the current program, vaccine hubris. Uh, you know, people start out their messages by, by self-declaring that the vaccines are safe and effective. And if without the vaccines, we would have lost far more lives. And then they go into their statements. I mean, right now, things are so distorted, so biased, uh, and so over the top. It, it, I just wonder at some point in time, will there just be a cataclysmic freefall of, uh, of basically understanding when this finally comes out? We talk about people being awake or not awake. And uh, I can say about 10% awake right now. Are you involved in any legal uh, efforts? And, and is this book going to be put out there as sort of evidence of uh, criminal activities that you have uh, witnessed? I can tell you at, uh, at a case level, I'm involved in dozens and dozens of cases around the world, not just in the United States, around the world. I'll have similar themes, but John Leake was I asked a very interesting question on Steve Bannon War Room. John, maybe we can ask you what Steve asked you uh, about the U.S. Senate. I suggested that what we've presented in our book is, is, a, is a starting point. I call it a prosecutorial memo or something of yeah, a starting point for something like a, a, a referral to the Justice Department. I mean, I, I think the totality of circumstances that we set forth in our book are, are sufficient for the Department of Justice to open a, a formal inquiry into the suppression of, of early treatment. And then what Dr. Alexander was saying, this extremely negligent and reckless conduct with the ramping up of the vaccine. And so um, uh, Steve Bannon asked, you know, would I be willing to go Washington. Now he made the presumption that there was going to be a change of the guard in, in, in November. Um, you know, would I be willing to go to Washington to, to testify about this and to present my own findings? And well, and of course I would. I mean, I think it would be ideal if Dr. McCullough and I were to present our findings together. But I, I, I think where we stand now, though, and, and I, I don't know if I articulated it very well, it's, it's a sort of a, 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 a absurd situation or a, or a paradoxical situation. The evidence is there. The perpetrators have plainly stated it, published it, videotaped it themselves. It's just not being attended to. Why is that, do you think, after you've spent all this time working on this book? Well, th this, this was the, the analog that I, I tried to make with these massive industrial military uh, endeavors. I mean, I really think the history of modern total war is, is, is very illuminating about how these big complexes work. They're not, they are not circumscri circumscribed or impeded by ethical scruples. These are massive. We already know that. We're talking about why hasn't the justice system kicked in? There is an oblivion to justice. There's an oblivion. It's actually in the minds of people. And one of the best examples I can tell you is that through the uh, Public Health and Professional Review Committee, the, 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 F, the FOIA lawsuit by Aaron Siri against the FDA and Pfizer. Remember, the lawyer for the FDA wanted to block this information to America for yeah. 55 years. That was the FDA. The lawyer for the FDA wanted to block the flow of information. It came out, uh, the first tranche of data, Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths within 90 days of release of their vaccine. Most deadly biologic product ever released in mankind. And they hired 600 employees to just actually receive all the reports. And uh, you know this has come out. Pfizer has given no public statement regarding this. Albert Borla is coming on other TV stations advising on fourth and potentially fifth shots. There's a complete oblivion. You think think the press would be interested in asking them, you know, do you plan to address these deaths? Do you have any comment? Is your, is your legal team uh, gearing up to face the press on this? The press don't seem to even care. The uh, traditional mainstream press are, are co-opted. I think of the, the German chemistry professor that invented mustard gas and, and, and a way to, to, to deliver it. I mean, his own wife said, I can't in clear conscience 
live with you anymore. I, I can't be married to a professor at an academy who's inventing these weapons of war that are going to be used to burn out the lungs of, of millions of Frenchmen and, and English boys. I just, I just can't live with this. But when you get to these massive, the scale of, of money and entrenched interest and patronage and professorships and all of this stuff, people don't, they, there's a part of human cognition that, that once you get on the train and you're participating in this massive endeavor, and, and your whole reward system is being activated by this. It is remarkable to me how people have far fewer scruples than they do, for example, in their personal friendships. And so we say, why isn't the justice ministry or why isn't the U.S. Senate apart from Ron Johnson addressing this? Because they're all swimming in this current. A guy, you know, a guy like Dr. McCullough or Senator Ron Johnson are these outliers that are swimming against it. I happen to believe that they will be vindicated. They will. I, be I mean, I the, here's what I don't understand. I don't understand why they're outliers if they're the ones actually treating COVID patients successfully. That's what I don't get. They're they're being treated. That's that's a psyop job right there. Okay, because. Right. If, if I had, and I, ha I had COVID and guess what I did? I call, I, I emailed M Dr. McCullough and a couple other people I interviewed and I got my, my, my ivermectin and my, you know, supplements and this and that two weeks and I was fine. So there's a psyop going on here. For sure. You've seen an entire society and justice system corrupted before. I mean, yes. People make this assumption that Germany and the German people were, were some kind of um, uh, intrinsically barbaric drinking, you know, poisoned water in Central Europe or something. No, it was the most civilized country in Europe. And the entire country was corrupted in the 1930s and 40s. Now, not everybody. There were outliers like Heinrich and Thomas Mann, the novelist, well, they moved to L.A. I mean, you know, you, you, you have exiles and, and are people that land in the concentration camp because they're, they're protesting. But I mean, we've seen this happen in society before. I was watching this documentary on Adolf Eichmann and how, um, you know, Israel, it was a new state at the time. Israel just went and kidnapped him. I think it was in Argentina. They kidnapped him, brought him over, and you know, because the Nuremberg trials did not get to him. Okay. Decades later, though. So, Decades so yes, later. I understand. But people were, you know, people were going, well, do they have the right to do that to kidnap a guy? And, and Israel was like, we're bringing this guy to justice. And I'm looking for that person in the United States. That's what I'm looking for because, you know, it's, it's so massive, this thing. I think Senator Johnson has done a heroic job in the U.S. Senate. I, I attended his, his big hearing on, on January the 24th. He is tr a truly an American hero. The saddest thing I heard was when I interviewed him and he said, I have no power because I can't get people to listen. I can't get my colleagues to hear me. Remember, this is worldwide. And I can tell you, I think one of the things that will happen will be regime change, leadership change. Uh, Senator Johnson's equivalent in, in Australia is Craig Kelly. Remember, Craig was ostracized from his party. Craig is now running for prime minister, and he's got 185 people in the new United Australia Party going for members of parliament. Oh, wow. We're going to see us... Uh, uh, Scott Jensen, uh, running for governor of Minnesota. You have Fred Simon, governor of Nevada. These are doctors. These are doctors who's, who are wide awake. They understand uh, these issues. We have uh, now Joe Ladapo, Surgeon General of Florida. Ron, yeah, Ron yeah. DeSantis showing a lot of leadership. Things are really happening across the United States. We have uh, today, John and I, with Lauren Davis. Lauren is running for the Dallas County judge position, essentially a Dallas County executive position, that's the third most powerful position in Texas, one of the most 
populist states. And I can tell you, she's wide awake. She sees all these issues, just like we see on this call. I think it has to do with some people are in a trance and other people are awake. The people in the trance, by the way, they actually don't have any remorse or questions, even if their loved ones die of COVID. So there are news reporters whose brothers and sisters and spouses have died of COVID. They've never had a TV spot on how to treat COVID early, how to save the next life. There are people who have taken the vaccine and they've died of the vaccine and, and there's no outrage by the loved ones, none. How can people get this book and um, support what you are doing? We wanted to get the book out as quickly as possible. So we just have to humbly confess that Amazon with its vast efficiency for better or for worse was the best mechanism for doing this. Um, and there, there has been no attempts at censorship or anything. So we, we would um, encourage your viewers to go to Amazon. You can find our book. Um, it's The Courage to Face COVID-19. I think Dr. McCullough has it perched just above his left shoulder. And um, we have a website.